Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Undersampled Radio episode. This is not episode 45. It is episode 47. My notes were wrong. We have a very special guest on today. Um, her name is Sue Webb. Thanks for joining us, Sue. Hi. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So you were recommended to us, to the Undersampled crew, by Martin Bentley, who I believe you know from the field camp, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, Martin was one of our participants um, a couple of years ago. Good. Um, so we have some links in the show notes for the audience to check out uh, Sue's university bio, which is extensive. And it's, it seems like uh, you do a thousand different things. Um, so I, I guess your, your main focus is, is gravity, is potential fields with, with uh, specific relation to gravity uh, measurements. Um, so what do you what what does your research focus on? So a lot of my research is focusing on gravity and magnetic interpretations and trying to understand um, a lot of integrated studies. Um, frequently, magnetics or gravity will contribute a, a portion to the interpretation, but we can bring in more from seismic and other methods also, um, also resistivity, for example. But my main driver is is getting good quality magnetic and gravity data, and using that in these um, integrated interpretations. Do you actually combine explicitly combine the data in your modeling, or is it just um, separate interpretive workflows, and it's it's all combined up here? Um, frequently, it's separate interpretive workflows, simply because the um, the magnetic data tends to be map data. And things, for example, like seismic tend to be profile data. So it's, it's difficult to really, um, unless you have 3D volumes of both data sets, it's very difficult to do a, a real combined interpretation. Although I do have a student that's working on an um, iterative um, resistivity and magnetotelluric um, combination project. So, so that will be either probably a sequential um, inversion to start with, but hopefully moving towards something more joint in the future. Cool. Do you get the resistivity information from well logs? Well, we, we've um, not often. Frequently in the environment we work in, they, they don't collect geophysical borehole data. Sure. But we do have the core. So now we've got a core, um, a new instrument we, we recently purchased to measure on the core itself you can measure the resistivity. So we're going to be collecting, I guess you'd call them hand logs from the core samples, <laughs> um, you know, to see where the major contrasts are. Um, unfortunately, in the mining environment, there's an order of magnitude less money, maybe two orders. <laughs> and um, so frequently, geophysical downhole data are not collected, but really, they should be. <laughs> so you're, you're mostly working in, um, in hard rock settings, are you? Or is it all sorts, um, basins as, as well? well? We're branching out. So the Fitzwater Basin, for example, is where, you know, 
90% or 80% of the world's gold has come from over the years. You know, it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous gold resource. And that's a hard rock environment. I mean, that's a quartzite, um, mainly quartzites. Um, in the Bushveld complex, for example, we have gabbros and anorthosites and, again, igneous rocks. So, again, a hard rock environment. But we are moving into the Karoo, for example. Um, our postdoc will be speaking shortly at the AAPG meeting in Cape Town about the, um, you know, the importance of magnetics, for example, for delineating dikes. Um, that's one of the complications in the Karoo environment that really we can't assess very well because the, the government data, which was collected back in the 70s, was collected at one kilometer line spacing. Well, you can fit a lot of little dikes in between there, and their attendant fractures are very important to understand. So a recent survey there um, collected at 200 meter line spacing and a much lower elevation showed up a whole new dike swarm people didn't even know about. Hmm. So this, this kind of information is absolutely critical when you're trying to evaluate that kind of a resource. Yeah, So uh, interesting. I know very, very little about geology. I'm, I'm a physicist by training. So, um, give me awesome. and <laughs> thank you. Give me and uh, the the rest of the dummies in in our audience uh, a sort of an overview of how you use this data with uh, modeling to uh, find gold deposits. This is what you're looking for, yes? Well. Um we, we can use it to look for gold frequently in the mining environment. Um, for example, magnetics is used to look for dangerous areas because when a, when a dike comes in, it's a vertical igneous intrusion. And when it comes in, it, it breaks the rock apart and it fractures it on either side. So that rock's very unstable. And if you're mining underground through that, you want to know where these broken rocks are. So it's very important to know how wide those dikes are and, and how extensively fractured the rock is around it. Hmm. Also, where the dike itself is, there, there won't be any resource. So there's no platinum, there's no gold. So we call that a loss of ground. And that can change the economics of your mine if, you know, if your dike is 20 meters wide, you're missing a lot of platinum or gold. Whereas if it's only 10 meters wide, you're, you have a lot more resource. So it's important to understand how big these are and how they affect um, the, the structural integrity of the mine itself. Um, so that, that's one example. Another example is um, my gravity work on the Bushveld complex. For many, many years, the, um, the, 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 the idea, the interpretation of the gravity data was that the, the bushveld had to be two separate intrusions. There's an eastern bushveld and a western bushveld, and they're separated. Mm. And what we were able to show was that if you allow it to be connected, but you allow the crust to actually bend, then you can have a connected bushveld. Well, that triples the amount of platinum because now it's continuous from east to west. It may be too deep to mine at, at this point in history, but you know, you can imagine your, your perspective of thing changes quite a bit. If you have a, a continuous later, then if you think you're running out of it in the, um, you know, just two little intrusions. So <laughs> it, it, it is very, it can change your interpretation a lot. It shows what's possible, not necessarily what is, though. We have to confirm it with other methods. What depths are we talking about in the Bushveld? Oh, um, well, they're mining now down to about two kilometers. Um, in, in places, which is quite shallow compared to the Vitz gold mines, which mine down to almost four kilometers. So, you know, we have some of the deepest mining in the world. 
Um, but we can't resolve the center point of you know our model um, too well because the only the only evidence we have at this point um, is a kimberlite. So that's something you mine diamonds for, or mine for diamonds. This kimberlite has come up through the bushveld. And it's actually brought little pieces of the bushveld with it. So we have mm. direct hand sample evidence that it's there mm. underneath the crust, but we don't know how deep. And it's it's probably less than 10 kilometers deep. Um, but to say precisely, we would need a seismic line across. And, you know, that's 2 million euros. So it's going to be a while before we can really afford that. Indeed. I think it would be fascinating. I've, I've done some work uh, doing uh, sub igneous imaging. So, um, oh, basalt imaging, yeah, absolutely. It's very, very tough problem, even with seismic, you know, because of the dif differential acoustic impedances. Do yeah. you are you able to more accurately image, do you think, with um, with gravity data, uh, sort of around or under um, igneous intrusions? Well, I think I think the gravity data provides an important constraint on on that sort of interpretation. I mean, I, I think that goes back to you know the sub sub salt imaging also, where, where you have this big density contrast with the salt, but you still want to see what's underneath that. And so, you know that 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 challenge is also quite important. Um, with 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 the seismic, for example, in the Karoo, we're also looking at all the sills that we have. Mm -hmm. um, which are exactly the problem you know you're talking about, and gravity is providing a little bit of a constraint on that because at least we can start to see where the the base of the basin is. Um, but the magnetics are are turning out to be more important because we can really map out the edges of the sills and and try to figure out where the connecting dikes are, because certainly in the Karoo we have a, a series of dikes and sills and then dikes and sills and so it's a very very complicated mess um, that that really will take some some detailed work I think. Yeah, very cool. So uh, how um, like I want to hear a bit about the Africa Ray project, but um, I'm also a bit curious about sort of how because I, I don't detect a South African accent so I'm thinking you came <laughs> to South Africa uh, in your career somewhere so how um, how did you land up at the University of uh, Witwatersrand? Well I'm actually from upstate New York where I'm sitting right now I'm originally from Syracuse and um, I did my undergrad in Binghamton New York and then huh. I went and did my master's up in uh, Memorial University in Newfoundland in Canada. Oh really? Huh. And I was in a relationship with someone, um, I had a summer internship at NASA before I went up to Canada, oh, and cool. I picked up a relationship there. And so we were both looking for jobs at the end of my master's, and we both found jobs in South Africa. So we moved there in 1990, um, sort of, you know, just for an adventure, not sure how long we'd be there. And, you know, 27 years later, we're still there. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. That's really cool. So, and do you come back over to the U.S. very often, or is this a sort of fairly rare trip? No, I, I do come back frequently at the moment. Um, I've served on the the boards essentially of um, both the SEG Society of Exploration Geophysicists, and I'm currently serving on the board of the American Geophysical Union. So hmm. I come over for the board meetings, and I also chair the committee on international participation, which is is where I'm. The reason I'm in the States at the moment. Right. Very cool. Um, 
So, and you'll be over for the AGU uh, annual meeting in Absolutely, New Orleans, I guess. Yes. It's in New Orleans this year, so um, we're very excited about that. It's going to be a, a really interesting um, venue for the meeting. Well, yeah. that's that's where I am. That's where I live. So. Oh, you live in New Orleans. Well, I hope I hope you'll come to the meeting. And of course, uh, of course, I will. You yeah. Do some podcasty stuff. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yeah. Um, give us give us a bit of information about the Africa Array project. So Africa Array is a, a it's a twenty year program to really um, develop training in Africa by Africans for Africans. And it's focused mainly on geophysics because we were in a dire situation um, uh, when it started um, that geophysics was down to basically three academic geophysicists in one program in South Africa, and in fact in Southern Africa. So the other geophysics programs had um, you know, dwindled away and been closed down or were not really internationally recognized. And so we, our, our head of school at the time put in a huge effort along with Andy Nyblade at, at Penn State University. Um, they are proposal writing machines. This was um, Paul Dirks. He's now at James Cook University. Um, and they are proposal writing machines and they, they managed to get this whole program of Africa Array running. And one of the things that, you know, we're very, very proud of is that we're, we're, we're actually having quite a bit of success with graduating black South African PhD students. Um, we've got three graduated so far in the geophysics program. There's another one that graduated from another program. And I, I've got one more that will probably graduate towards the end of the year. And that, if you, if you look at the statistics, that's, that's an enormous amount considering we have one geophysics program in the country. Um, yeah. So we're, we're very, very excited about that. And, um, you know, Musa Manzi is a, 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 a young uh, staff member with us, and he, he's an incredibly productive person. And the students are very, very attracted to him. So, it, you know, this whole idea of a role model makes a huge difference. Um, so that's how we want to do it, is actually develop the capacity within Africa. And it's harder and it takes longer, but it seems to, you know, stick better then, for example, bringing in guest lecturers all the time and setting up programs with temporary things. Um, mm -hmm. You can get some good successes with that, but they, they tend to dissipate over time because people don't want to come every single year. Um, and they, they're hard to fund. They're actually very, very hard to fund. So, so we've had good luck with this. Um, the funding is always an issue. We're always going around asking for more funding, but I think that's you know, the way academia is. Um, but we've had, we've had very, very good luck with the program. And we have um, developed research um, you know, initiatives throughout Africa with the use of these seismometers, which we're using to collect data for the science. So in mm. fact, at the end of the month, we've got the Africa Array annual meeting, which mm. will be held at BITS. And we'll have about 100 scientists from all over Africa um, coming to this meeting, and it's a free meeting. We, we don't charge a registration for you. We're not here to make money on this meeting. It's to enjoy the science that's going on in Africa by Africans. And so it's, it's really, really quite exciting from that point of view. Yeah, I, I, I really love the idea that um, a training course or a conference or you know anything, a hackathon, can actually contribute 
the science as well as just kind of reflecting or propagating it like you can actually collect new data you know um like what wh why wouldn't you kind of thing right it's almost like free you know it's two birds one stone kind of thing so i love that idea that you would go out and actually collect research data you create this kind of ecosystem of uh, yeah i mean self-reliance and uh yeah. cross references and relationships that, I mean, can only strengthen. So, so part of it, um, one of the things I discovered, for example, when I was, um, I was the SEG honorary lecturer for Africa and the Middle East, and I was, I was continually astonished at each university I went to, they would have quite a bit of equipment, sometimes even more geophysical equipment than I would have. And, but it would sit on a shelf and, and, you know, be like a trophy hmm. because people didn't know how to use it properly. And people were scared of breaking it. So one of one of the goals has been to run our field school, which is under the Africa Ray banner, where we bring people in from all over Africa, especially young people who are, um, you know, junior academics. They get told, okay, you run the field training, and and they may not have training themselves. So it's it's very mm. scary to take equipment down that you might break. And we inundate them with a three-week program that goes through the whole workflow of a geophysical project. So they have to plan the project, they have to cost it out, they have to assess the safety um, issues with that particular method. And then we go out in the field and we collect data for 10 days and they transfer between different groups. So they use all the equipment we have. You know, we have gravity, magnetics, differential GPS, resistivity, magnetotellurics, reflection, refraction, seismic, they do all of that in about 10 days and collect a huge wow. wealth of data on a particular problem. And then we go back to the office again and we try to use a lot of um, either industry standard software, because a lot of people are trying to go into industry, but also we bring in a lot of openware um, so that people can go back with all the tools they need to actually do the full workflow. And we interpret the data and we try to integrate it. And then at the end of the week, we have a presentation. So they, they get the whole thing in three weeks. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> it's amazing. It's a bit of a fire hose, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, really uh, cool. Sponsored for years by the SEG. Okay. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're cutting back a little bit on sponsorship because they're trying to get people to find other re revenue sources. Um, so we're in a bit of a bind this year, trying to get people to uh, contribute, but we're going ahead and uh, <laughs> maybe right. a little bit smaller, but we'll go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that's really cool. Well, good luck with it. I mean, how? So it's um, you said it's been uh, sponsored for years. Like, how many iterations has it been through? Oh, we we've been sponsored. Um, we let's see. I, I would say this concept of the field school has been running since about 2005. Okay. How many students have been through it in that time? About 300. Wow. wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So so we usually sponsor our, our own co part of it is we, you know we had a field school for our own students. But when you only have 8 or 10 students it, it's difficult to justify taking all that equipment out there and then you're only using two pieces at a time. So this is a case where bigger is better because you, you've got to, you know, if you're taking all that equipment out, you actually want to be using it the whole time. But you want the individual groups to be small. I never have more than four or five people in a group so that the students are actually hands-on with the equipment the whole time. You know, right. they're really physically pushing the buttons and doing the programming. 
Um, and of course, I have trouble with you know professor burnout because not everybody wants to do this every year. Right. And what I've w the way I've gotten around that is to use our graduate students. Mm. And so each graduate student is assigned a particular method, mm -hmm. and they learn about the logistics in the background. So it ends up being a two-tier training system because right. the, the students in the program learn how to use the equipment and you know run the workflow. But there's all that other work that goes on behind the scenes of making sure the cable um, talks to the new the new laptops don't have this port. You know, what do I do? <laughs> you right. go on the internet and you figure it out and fix it. So so the the graduate students are, are there behind the scenes figuring out all these logistical nightmares of you know old code that dumps the, the magnetometer runs under DOS. How do we get that onto a, a you know Windows 10 machine? So right. <laughs> it's all these different things that um, really make our students you know much more employable at the end of it because if they've done the field school as a student and then as an instructor, they're really good at problem solving. You know, yeah. can happen I, in the field. I love that. It's it's funny actually because we were we we chatted yesterday to my colleague um, Evan in Agile on on the podcast that we did the last episode yesterday. Um, and his wife's a, a doctor and he was talking about how the hospital operates in this similar kind of way with the sort of chains of training, um, yeah. you know, and, and using juniors so, so that basically you're mentoring people who are only the year behind you kind of thing. Um, and how powerful that is as a way to kind of um, distribute the, um, the the training not just the burden but also the perspective and the knowledge and so on and I remember yeah, he's, he I we find it works incredibly well because the students you know they they relate very well to each other and even cool. though we'll have students from like 17 different countries on one field school um you know that just adds to the mix and in fact we bring over um American students um, okay part yeah. of the program is um um through the um some of the National Science Foundation programs on diversity. So here is Africa helping the U.S. with yeah. diversity and geoscience. <laughs> I love that. I'm yes. I'm signing yeah. up right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it also reminds me of this other concept um, in that I think has also come from medicine, where when learning new procedures, I guess in particular in surgery, um, there's this sort of phrase that they have: uh, "See one, do one, teach one." You know, yeah. like it's literally that kind of velocity of uh, skill acquisition, and I, I, I really like that idea. So yeah, very cool. I'd I'd love to um to see it in action. So if I ever ever make it to South Africa, to come down and visit. Before <laughs> we, I'm not sure where you are. You look like you're in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's closet. I mean, you know, this is a uh, this is a podcasting booth. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. It is basically a closet. Before we move off topic, I want to um, get a, a link or an address or something from you where where interested students should can, can go look or sign up or whatever. So, so our um, probably the most accessible is our Facebook page. Um, okay. We've got one for the the field school itself, which is the um, Africa Ray slash Vits um, W I T S. Um, um, geophysics field school. Um, so there's not a lot with Africa Ray in the word in the 
in the title, so it should come up pretty quickly. Okay, I have a note here in the show notes, so if anyone listening is interested in signing up or learning more about the program, check out the show notes and, and go see what it's about. Can you give us uh, your favorite success story from um, student to, um, say, graduate student or student to employee? Uh, as a success from oh, that God. Comfort Rice. There's so many. <laughs> um, one of my favorites was Esther and Jerry. She's a um, she's a, a young woman from Kenya, and she approached me. She said, "You know, we want to run a field school." And I said, "Well, why don't why don't you apply to our field school, and we'll we'll try to, you know, that would be the easiest way is to show you what we're doing, and then you can apply it to your own." And she, she is just such a, a dynamite person. And she, she came on our field school and, and was just like a sponge and went back to Kenya and started a field school there. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So to me, that's just the epitome of success. And we, we've got another couple that are fledgling starting in um, Nigeria and hopefully in Ghana. Um, another success story is a student that came on the field school about five years ago. And now she's come to do a PhD with me, so she's wow. she's here on a um, here in South Africa on a, um, a NRF fellowship from Ghana, and she will be going back to Ghana as a junior um, faculty member. And so you know that kind of success is wonderful because now she's an instructor on the field school, and we'll be getting that kind of second tier of education on that. Um, mm. But she still has the experience from coming, you know, as a sponsored um, student too. Yeah, really like that. I think um, often when you think about sort of how do you scale something, you know, like we've got something really good going on here. Like how can we bring this to, uh, you know, other uh, countries or regions of Africa um, or the world even? And there's a tendency, and I feel this tendency too, to want to kind of be the one who scales it and to like, oh, I have to show up in Kenya and go do this thing. But no, actually, oh, I... you can just sort of enable, well, maybe that would be awesome too, but you can actually, <laughs> um, it's more efficient to enable a network, essentially franchise the idea almost, right? And enable a network to go and yeah, build an army, basically. Perfect analogy is, is almost a franchise. And I, I like to emphasize to the students because they, there's been a number that have come and, you know, they want to go back and start their own field school, but they're just overwhelmed by the size of it. I mean, mm. you know, at, at, at the maximum last year, I think we had 39 people. <laughs> and I say, look, when I started the field school, I had one magnetometer and two students. Right. right. You know, it, it started that simple, but it's more about getting the workflow. And then each year I would add something. And so every single year I would either try to add a method or a concept or, you know, one year it was, you know, really concentrating on safety. And so each year one thing gets added um, to, to increase what, what we're doing. Yeah, that's great. How is doing geophysics in South Africa or Southern Africa different from doing it in the rest of the world? So what, what do you guys focus on uh, in teaching and in working? Well, I think um in in a lot of other programs the the emphasis is more on global geophysics um which we, which we do a, a fair component of but you know earthquake studies well we don't really have earthquakes we don't really have volcanoes in south africa so we are more focused on resource um exploration and that can be for water that could be for oil and gas that could be for diamonds you know there, there's many 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 types of resources 
we're doing even land use resources you know finding old old um mine workings you know a lot of the coal areas are riddled with with old tunnels that and the maps are just not sufficient to to map those out so there's many many different applications of geophysics um and so i would say we run a more applied geophysics program but we do try to keep in mind you know the the more global aspects so I've done a lot of work on the Bushveld, and I had a, a very talented student who, who wanted to do a, a project with me. And we looked at the paleomagnetism of the Bushveld. Okay, cool. and we were looking at the magnetic reversals and the, the magnetic directions that were recorded in the Bushveld complex. Well, this doesn't sound like resource application, but it turns out it might actually have something to do with the resources because it records a specific temperature of cooling. And so we're looking into where, if we can map out some of these reversals in more detail and look at the cooling history and even look at the history of the Earth's magnetic field back in time. <laughs> so although we're more applied, I like to see us as, you know, we'll take advantage of whatever the data tells us. And so we, we also look, for example, with our magnetotelluric um, project, there was a very big project on Ellen Jones um, was running on the um, South African magnetotelluric experiment, which looks at the very, very deepest crust, you know, right down through the whole crust of the, the Archean craton and into the upper mantle, and right from South Africa all the way through to the border of Angola, through Namibia and up into the border with Angola. Very, very exciting data. And now what we want to do is look at that in conjunction with some of these old seismic lines that are 16 seconds that go right through the crust. So we've got these tremendous, tremendous data sets that we can ask all kinds of important questions, some of which are you know, directly related to mining and some of which are more um, you know, global geophysics. So we, we try to keep a foot in both worlds because they do influence each other. It seems like uh, the, the need is there, um, but you mentioned a, a decline in the geophysical programs in Southern Africa. Is that due to decline in, in mining, or is it uh, influx from outside Africa of scientists? Well, what, what I was referring to was, was back in 2004, uh -huh. um, because the, the program in Pretoria had closed, um, our program was under threat, so, so there was a, a, a bit of a dip then, and we've been building up since then. Gotcha. Um, you know, so it's it, it's really, we, we've been quite successful, I think, building the program up. And now the question is, how do you, how do you make sure all the geoscience programs in Southern Africa actually have a geophysics component that's meaningful? Because mm -hmm. right now they're, they're kind of borrowing instructors and, you know, they'll have a component of geophysics, but it's not really integrated. And, and really, I think that's the move um, in, in programs and, and in the work environment is to have more integration of the different methodologies. So you, you know, you'll, you'll build up a team with a geochemist and a geophysicist and a structural geologist to solve a problem. And so this idea of problem solving is, is really where the, you know, education is going, but, but it's, it's difficult to do that when you, you know, you only have one geophysics program and you're just going somewhere else and teaching for two weeks. It doesn't really lead to a lot of integration. So I guess my, my goal is to get a geophysicist in every university. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if that happens. <laughs>
Uh, that's very cool. Um, speaking of problem solving, I, I just on a sort of hunch checked up on a, um, there's a, an outfit in Australia called Unearthed, um, unearthed.solutions, I think is their, their URL. And um, I just noticed that they're doing a hackathon in Cape Town, which I know is sort of the other side of South Africa uh, for you. But um, in case there are any listeners, uh, geoscientists or in mining subsurface people, uh, I think it's the 21st to the 23rd of July in Cape Town. So, um, and we went to one in Toronto, uh, which was funded by Barrett Gold. So it was also yeah. focused on gold, gold mining. And uh, it was fascinating. There were problems in um, predictive maintenance, but also essentially 50% of the problems were focused on uh, geoscience. And especially they were interested in sort of getting intelligence about junior mining companies and other activities in the sector. Um, but I don't know what the problems will be in Cape Town. Uh, there could be some really interesting ones, hopefully some with some geophysics in them. But Yeah, I, I hope so. I've, I've, I've seen those around. Um, unfortunately, the 21st and the 23rd is right at the end of my field school. So, ah. I know. Otherwise, I'd, I'd send the whole herd down. Um, and it's a, a shame um, they couldn't work with our, our South African Geophysical Association because we have a conference coming up in September. I don't know if there'll be time we can maybe um, twist their arm to come back and um, maybe talk about that because it's it's um, it's quite an quite an interesting conference that we have a lot of student um, talks, but we also have a lot of professionals from all over the world. Oh, cool. um, the conference has gotten a lot of um, it's it's a you know it's one of these we try to have it in a closed place so people can't go back to their office and <laughs> right. um, where is it um this year it's an it's actually in cape town but just outside of cape town um at the i i don't want to get the name of the hotel wrong but it's it's one of the hotels um it's it's saga online if you go to sagaonline.co.za you'll you can link to the the conference site Okay, I've just the, cool. the name of the hotel slipped my mind. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, cool. uh, getting getting a geophysicist into every university around there is an amazing and noble goal. Um, <laughs> in uh, in in highlight, uh, what's what's the five year plan or the five year goals for the for the uh, program the geophysics program at Pitts? Well, we've we've established a um, seismic research center. So Muzamanzi, who's who's one of our um, um, new colleagues, has we we were able to get sponsorship from CGG, which is an oil services provider, and also from Shell. They have sponsored his post for five years uh, and the wow. seismic research center for five years, which is is a tremendous tremendous help because. In academia, it's very, very difficult to to get a new post. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> to grow a department is very, very hard, especially in the current conditions. So the fact that we got this sponsored by outside money means that we were able to do that. And Musa has been very, very good about um, getting data. Um, one of the big problems is you 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 can get sponsorship for equipment, you get all kinds of shiny computers, and you get a new building. And maybe you get the right person because the person is always very important, but then that person doesn't have any data to work with. And the mining companies have been incredibly generous about giving us 3D volumes of data. Hmm. So we have um, tremendous amounts of, of 2D seismic data. Some of it, you know, is this older data, but it's, it's shot down to 16 seconds. We have something yeah. like 29,000 line kilometers of 16 second data. It's, it's, wow. 
as far as I know, it's the most in the world. And then we also have offshore data. Um, Shell also donated one of their 3D volumes from some of their, their offshore work. So we have, we have data, we have students, we have a, a person driving it. Um, our, our goal is to really emphasize the physics of geophysics, which I hope you'll appreciate, Matt. Indeed. <laughs> um, with, with, with the emphasis that, um, because there, there seems to be a Berlin wall between oil and gas and the mining industry. And, and we're trying to say it's all the same physics. You know, mm. it's, it, density may be more important in the mining industry for, um, you know, velocity control than velocity is, but it's still the same physics. So we've also, um, Moose has also been able to develop a, um, a physical property lab because we have in the, on the mining side, we have a, um, a, a, a compression cylinder. So we can actually measure seismic velocities while the, the sample is under pressure. Cool. You know, and that that's kind of exciting. So so we're developing all of these. So we're trying to bring the whole workflow into the research environment. Um, and for example, this year we purchased a a seismic source. It's a, a small um, hydraulic hammer source. So it's not you know a vibra sized truck, but it allows us to collect our own data and start from the beginning with the processing. So unfortunately, a lot of the data we've, we've been given has already had that first bit of processing done. Right. And the original data is sometimes missing. So that, that's been unfortunate. So to get back to that, we want to start, you know, developing our own data. So, you know, that's kind of the seismic research side. On the Africa Array side, one of the things we're going to be doing at this meeting is, is charting a way forward because Andy Nyblade, um, who's at Penn State, who has been driving kind of the U.S. side of Africa Array, is, is, is stepping back a little bit from that, and we're looking for one of the emerging U.S. researchers to kind of take that role on, and also to have the, the African participants start driving it and start applying for funding sources themselves and, and really start driving the science more. Um, we, we've developed the network that's collecting the data, now we need to um, even drive the science a bit more throughout Africa. Awesome. So building a self-sustaining machine. That, that's amazing. That's what uh, we're doing. I mean, it's not just me, you know, it's our, our whole department. <laughs> hey, Matt, um, in 30 seconds, do you have anything we need to highlight before the hackathon in a couple of days? Can't think of anything other than if you're actually participating. Um, just another reminder to get your team into the the spreadsheet of teams that's that's pretty much it stay tuned to the slack channel too for you know last minute updates or whatever that's where they'll that's where they'll come out excellent sue webb thank you for joining us today it's been an awesome talk and we look forward to seeing how the program progresses and and uh seeing some cool results oh thank you so much i really appreciate the time cheers sue see you guys next week live and direct on undersampled radio paris edition <laughs> 